Hello and welcome to our Queer Southern History Story Hour. I am Liv. I'm Mac. And we're both current undergraduate students at UT Dallas, here to share the stories of 19th century transgender and gender-bending individuals, specifically focusing on how they were covered in the news. This project is part of a Southern Queer Public History Pilot Lab at the University of Texas at Dallas, spearheaded by assistant professor and historian Dr. Anne Gray Fisher. This podcast was created as part of a larger public history exhibit called Ecstatic Time here in the Queer South, showcased on November 29th, 2023 at the Gallerstein Gender Center here on campus. We found some pretty interesting stories in the archives from the late 19th century from Tennessee, Texas, and Illinois, and discovered the lives of Frances Thompson, Lizzie Montgomery, and Ellis Glenn. We chose this area of research to explicitly assert that queer people have always been here, in the American South, despite erasure and archival neglect, i.e. choosing not to preserve records of their existence. Our primary sources come from newspaper clippings and congressional documents, which we piece together methodologically with three different secondary sources, titled Black Trans Feminism by Marquis Bay, Black on Both Sides by C. Riley Snorton, and Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments by Sadia Hartman. We use this plethora of sources to build a more cohesive understanding of what our subjects were like and present them to our audience in a way that is hopefully closer to what they would have wanted to be known as. Thus, out of respect for our subjects, we will refer to them in the manner that they wish, only using incorrect pronouns when we are quoting primary sources in our primary news coverage. Over the next half hour or so, we will discuss how the daring existence and visibility of these three individuals triggered institutionalized state violence because they were incomprehensible to the white men who covered them. Or to put it in layman's terms, people were violent to what they refused to understand. We will also reflect on how trans people are still being covered in similar ways today and how things have changed for the better. Before we dive in, we would like to give a general content advisory about deadnaming, misgendering, and otherwise dehumanizing news coverage of Black and white trans people and trans topics, as well as some mentions of sexual assault, though we will generally keep any mentions of violence pretty brief. Also, if you would like to read along, we provide a full transcript in the show notes and up on the website made by one of our classmates. Frances Thompson was a black transgender woman who lived in Memphis, Tennessee for most of her life. She was born into slavery in Maryland around 1840, but spent most of her time as a slave in Virginia. She presented herself and lived her life as a female from childhood, also doing traditional feminized labor such as sewing, laundering, and cooking. She was also physically disabled in her legs and her feet, having what she described as cancer in her foot, which required her to use crutches. Something that I think that's really interesting about how she's describing her disability feels very modern. For instance, cancer in her foot sounds very like achy bones syndrome that like a lot of people use to talk about disability. One of the things I'm curious about is how she was able to do feminized labor. Is it because of her disability that she was kind of given permissions to do feminized labor, or was it because people were accepting her early on? I think that whether she was disabled in her childhood or it was an acquired disability later in her life, that's going to be what depends on how she was able to be accepted as a woman Mm -hmm. um, and be able to dress as a woman at such a young age and also as a slave, which is where you're, you're not given autonomy over yourself fundamentally. And I think that her disability definitely plays into her identity, you know, as a trans woman. I mean, it's like textbook intersectionality where different experiences combine to make your existence. So Mm -hmm. she's black. That's one facet of her life. She's trans. And then she's also disabled. That definitely adds an element to her experience for sure. Moving on. Yes, moving on. After slavery was abolished in 1865, she promptly moved south to Memphis, Tennessee, where she would continue to live her life undetected. 
Now in her mid-twenties, Thompson lived in a small house on Gayoso Avenue, just mm-hmm. one block north of the famous Beale Street, with another former slave named Lucy Smith. Gayoso is very gay. That sounds great. Yes, I just, thought... Just from outside. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very fitting that she lived on Gayoso Avenue. Yes. Um, which it is still there, by the way. I looked it up. I hope queer people live on Gayoso still. Yeah, it's a very... It's it's the hub of Memphis now, is, is in that area where she lived. Interesting. So, yeah, it's like the main downtown area. City woman. Yes, yes, very much. I think it makes a lot of sense for her that she moved to a big city like this. Even though it wasn't a big, big city back then, but... Probably felt like it. It did. I'm sure it felt like it from moving from Maryland and then from Virginia, you know? Mm -hmm. But yeah. In May of 1866, however, racial violence broke out between Irishmen and black freedmen in what became infamously known as the Memphis Riots. Francis and Lucy's home was invaded by seven white men, two of whom were police officers, and were brutally assaulted and burglarized while being held hostage for four hours. Soon after the riots ended, a congressional investigation committee heard victims' testimony. I think what's really interesting here about the riots, I mean, we're not really getting into a lot about the riots, but seeing these two groups of Irish and Black men at the time, the way that Irish people were treated was not... They had to eventually, over time, adopt whiteness where they were not treated with the same privilege i mean they probably were treated better than black people right Mm -hmm. yes but they probably were not they're not treated with the same privilege as like waspy white people yeah yeah. it was very much an assimilation race it seemed yeah like they had to assimilate or identify with other marginalized groups like it was either or it was a choice at this time yeah and the choice was to go along with white supremacy and Mm -hmm. um and actually in memphis a lot of the police and a lot of the jobs that irish immigrants got were jobs in the police force and in firefighting yeah so they were they came in contact with black people like every day because they worked in public service right and so that definitely made black freedmen that are from here right very upset you know like these jobs are being taken by these irish immigrants that are not from here and then they're being treated horribly by these people who are not from here and Mm -hmm. so they're it definitely increased the tensions a lot it's definitely like a product of capitalism like i mean there is that classic example of like the capitalist will try to divert their attention from Mm -hmm living wages, livable working conditions to these racial tensions Mm -hmm. as a way to make it to where they're not thinking about the fact that they're being paid a fraction of what they deserve Mm -hmm. or like they're dying in these jobs, but then kind of diverting their attention to, well, these Irish workers are getting privileges or these other workers are breaking strikes because of necessity that they need any sort of form of income. Mm -hmm. It is capitalism that is creating this tension and these kind of desperate situations that's putting people in the position to really fight each other. Yeah, that's the stage that was set for the Memphis riots. It was Mm -hmm. the perfect combination of of racial tension and desperation that built this. And Francis was a victim of it. Definitely. I think part of what really sets the tone for Francis, she was victimized in the situation that she's a black woman that's Mm -hmm. being treated differently, especially in the eyes of the time where they don't know that she's trans. Right. So she's just being treated as a black woman. And here taken advantage of by people who invaded her house these two of them are police officers which speaks volumes Mm -hmm. of how she probably comes to view the state after this incident right yeah and it makes sense as we continue to talk about her story we see these threads we'll discuss more on that later yeah the state as a perpetuator of her trauma yeah yeah definitely Soon after the riots ended, a congressional investigation committee heard victims' testimony, including Francis. Despite the tragic circumstances, though, Francis became the first black trans woman to testify in front of Congress, leaving an an official record of her own words, which is a rare phenomenon for any former slave at this time. Right, and she's also the first trans person. Oh, yeah. Yeah, first trans person ever, too. So it's it's really awesome that Mm -hmm. um, even... Although the circumstances are are 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that she probably would she have preferred not to. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Like, yeah. But, um... At least we have her words on yeah, record, which for, is yeah. the point that you did make. Right, yeah. Ten years later, in July of 1876, things took a turn for the worse for Frances. She was arrested under suspicion of cross-dressing and was forcibly examined by four of Memphis's, quote, best physicians who exposed her, quote, true identity as a man. Unable to pay the $50 fine, she was instead sentenced to serve 100 days on a chain gang and forced to wear men's clothes the entire time. Yeah, that should be, like, pretty shocking because, I mean, she's socialized as a woman Mm -hmm. and they're saying, you know, everything that you've lived in your life is wrong. You are a man by our standards. And the fact that it took them 10 years? Yeah. I wonder what triggered this. Maybe did something happen among the inner politics? Right. We don't have information about what prompted this. I tried looking and there was really no other description of her arrest other than just suspicion of cross-dressing. Yeah. She was involved in at least one other lawsuit Mm -hmm. prior to 1876. I believe it was in 1873, actually, that she was part of a lawsuit. So she'd encountered like, the law before, mm-hmm. so people knew about her in the community, and I assume the suspicion became so overwhelming that they just decided to arrest her. I wonder what happened. Yeah, I do too. We can only speculate. There's no record of what the arrest was specifically mm-hmm. triggered by. $50 must have been a lot. It, back it was a lot of money. Because people yeah. getting paid, like, a dollar a week, yeah. you know? Yeah, she was actually paid... A couple cents per week during her time on the chain gang. Mm-hmm. They paid her, but very minimally. So right above calling it slavery. Yeah. But because she was previously known for her congressional testimony against her white male assailants during the Memphis riots, particularly the sexual violence she endured, newspapers from around the country were quick to attack and slander Francis after she was outed as a quote man. A newspaper that covered her extensively, the newspaper Daily Appeal, actually published Francis's 1866 testimony with a several sentence long vitriolic rant written above it. Mm. And that reads as quote, there is no knowing what amount of corruption he has aided and abetted, nor how many women, both white and black, he has ruined. He has played the part of a go-between and procures and plied a nefarious trade as a wholesale debaucher. Of his utter depravity there is no room to doubt, and as little that he is capable of using his vile tongue to the injury of anyone whom he may regard as his enemy. Ugh, man. Yeah. That feels very modern, like, right-wing talking point of because a trans woman is defying what is perceived as natural law of accepting your quote-unquote biological set of rules. Mm -hmm. She is to be compared to like devil behavior, satanic activity. It's this is pretty severe for this time. I'm pretty sure a lot of people are religious. Yes. Oh yeah. And especially in the South. Yeah. And I think it's very interesting that they immediately go to implying that she is her just being herself, she has corrupted, aided and abetted men and women. Right. Which I have no idea what that is supposed to is but affirming her assault. Right. Because the fact that she presented as a woman before they insulted her. But, like, mm-hmm. that does not make any sense. The logic here is really bad. It's extremely thin. Yeah. It has a lot of holes. But back then... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, the racism and mm-hmm. the complete and utter misunderstanding of her situation, that's what caused this explosion that we're going to discuss of media coverage about her after her arrest. Due to the massive sensationalization of Francis's story, the same newspaper, the Memphis Daily Appeal, also conducted and published an interview with her. Despite the deliberate depiction of Francis as a criminal, it is the most valuable source we've found in regards to how Francis defined and defended her right to exist. We want to preface here that despite her fervent justification of her right to exist in this interview, the paper still cruelly misgenders Francis by using he pronouns when they paraphrase her words by publishing, quote, 
he thinks it hard that he should be imprisoned because he wore female clothing, for he was regarded always as a woman and had female attire during the entire time of his slavery. The white persons who brought him to this country should be punished if anyone is to suffer for his wearing woman's attire. Despite the dead naming, this is an incredibly unique and important quote that gives us a lot of information about how she identified. Also how she felt about this entire situation in general, saying that ultimately it's the fault of the slave trade. Yeah. That she is even in America and she is just trying to live her life as a woman. And if she weren't in America, she'd probably be completely fine. You know, if she were still living where she was from, then, or where her family is from, then it wouldn't be... She was born in Maryland. She was born in Maryland. Okay. But her family, her ancestry is tied to to yeah. Africa. We don't know where yeah. in Africa, but... I mean, she's blaming the colonizer, which is yeah. pretty great because it's turning it back on them saying like, you're mad at me, but like, I didn't ask to be right. here. Yeah. I didn't ask to be enslaved. I'm just doing me over here. Why is it any of your business? What clothes I wear, if I'm a woman, any of this. And like, how can you fault her when she's not in control of the circumstances of her upbringing, of her, of her, of her upbringing. socializing. Right. Yeah. yeah. As a child, I mean, I'm pretty sure she probably had some autonomy to be like, what's up? I'm a woman. Or yeah, I'm a girl. I like I to do dress. girl things. Yeah. I like to wear these clothes. Yeah. And it, it could also be possible that like she was just raised in a very female dominant community right where it was just she identified with it yeah so she just and that was just what how she grew up and so she's she Mm -hmm. just decided to keep going with it and that's how she felt comfortable i mean yeah she's like this feels right i'm gonna keep doing this yeah yeah and it's just like when she's met with this incredible amount of hatred and vitriol She's just like, what the heck, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I I don't know what else to say, you know? I, I mean, they detransitioned her. <laughs> right. They forcibly detransitioned her. Yeah, for, which is traumatic. It is. In and of its own. Like, she's having to deal with so many compounding events and abuses. It's not mm-hmm. really shocking that she distrusted the state to mm-hmm. this extent. Right. And yeah, this, this quote reminds me of a C. Riley Snorton quote from their book Black on Both Sides, mm-hmm. where, quote, blackness and transness are tethered in the contemporary landscape in terms of visibility, in which the form of attention directed at black and trans people is frequently articulated through policies. But right. in our case, it's also through criminalization and media. Right. This quote is the perfect methodological format to look at her life. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just that she was trans or just that she was black. She was black and trans. Mm-hmm. And so those both... They cannot be separated They out. can't. They can- and that draws attention in and of itself because from here we see her as something that is odd in terms of the tone mm-hmm. of the news coverage. And it's also something that's... She is the devil because she decided to have autonomy over her life and her body. Yeah, and to fight back against what she was told. All right, this article also alludes to the possibility that the chief of police at the time, Tim Hops, and the jailkeeper sexually assaulted and humiliated her in front of the public, with Francis threatening that, quote, he could disclose startling secrets which would bring disgrace upon and ruin many a white man in Memphis. I mean, they assaulted her, and if they're going to state explicitly that she's a man, this makes it gay. Mm And the perception. Yeah. It makes it queer. Yes, it does. I think it's really bold of her to use this against them, because it's like, well, you're accusing me of this. Well, I'm going to accuse you of kind of the same thing. It's putting her in this corner and expecting her to just do nothing. Yeah, this part of the article is my favorite just because she's she's throwing it back at him and I love that. And they're trying to subtly imply that but it's really obvious yeah. because this is the person that is someone who assaulted her and is trying to assert power over her and she's like, no, I also have power even in mm-hmm. this instance. Yes. If we're going to be doing moral-based judgments here, sir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Also, I just want to briefly mention how one newspaper called the Pulaski Citizen decided to go about making accusations against Francis and an article titled, quote, Under False Colors, specifically focusing on her physical disability. 
The publication states that her, quote, deformity served as an excuse for the pretended female cripple to promenade the streets on crutches, implying that she somehow didn't need them or is using her disability to pass as a woman. Which is wild. Yeah. If you look at disability studies, for instance, Elsa Sunhensen's autobiography, where she talks about how people strip gender or desexualize disabled women when they have visible markers of disability. Mm -hmm. And so to think that they're saying the opposite, I'm pretty sure that she would find that hilarious. The concept of crutches as being feminine, I'm like, Mm -hmm. that is... Yeah. Who looks at crutches and like, okay, cool, you're a woman. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah, just it just goes to show how hyper genderfied everything was. Mm-hmm. Like it really is just everything had to have an assigned femininity or masculinity. That reminds me of like the big pens for women. It's yeah. pink now. Yes. <laughs> Crutches yeah. for women. Yeah. It's like pink. They and have flowers. ribbons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it. This is definitely the most wild quote that I found written yeah. about Francis because. How are you going to attack somebody for being disabled? Right. Like, it's just, it, it's such a low, low swing, you know? Because, I mean, she's got to deal with that all the time. She's dealing with her pain. She's literally just using mm-hmm. this adaptive aid as crutches. I'm just trying to walk. What do you want from yeah. me? <laughs> it's just, it's the nitpicking right. about her, 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 just her existence. I it's think so it was like they needed something to cover and Francis was there. Like Right. They're bored. Yeah. And they're just like, this is something that we can wring out a lot of papers. Let's sell some papers here. Yeah. It's the grasping at straws situation. All right. Upon her release in mid-October of 1876, she moved away to a secluded cabin in North Memphis. However, after only a few weeks of getting settled into her life as a free woman again, she contracted a bad case of dysentery and passed away in the hospital on November 2nd, 1876, in her early to mid-30s. That's too young. Yeah, she was very young, and and it was only just a month after she got out of her sentence. Mm -hmm. So she didn't even have time to recuperate. And she was probably suffering because she was just feeling sick. Yeah. It just really speaks to the conditions of her imprisonment. Like, Definitely. She can barely survive. She's disabled. She's having to do this like hard manual labor because they're like, this is an excuse to be a woman. And she's like, no, my legs actually mm-hmm. hurt. I wonder if they let her use her crutches or use any mobility aid at all while she was on the chain gang. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't until she was to wear... If it impeded her ability to do a job, they would probably be like, meh, maybe. Mm -hmm. You know, because otherwise, I mean, she probably wouldn't have been released. Right. This also speaks to, like, dysentery. I wonder the conditions, Mm -hmm. how you can track that. Is it not hygienic limbing conditions? Is it food-related, like she's being fed rotten food? Any of these number of things that she has to put up with. It's unclear whether she contracted the dysentery while she was imprisoned or after, but it definitely is clear either way that the conditions of her imprisonment sucked. Yeah, sucked. sucked. And and created this the opportunity for her to get sick because previously she was living in the city where they right. had access to relatively clean water for the time. For the time. For the time. <laughs> um I mean it was 1876, but right. You know, they lived right on the Mississippi River, and then she had to move up north in North Memphis because she didn't feel safe where she lived anymore. Mm -hmm. So she had to move away into a cabin where she had to, she probably contracted dysentery there from unclean water. So it's really unfortunate that this happened to her. Yeah. But, you 30 know, is too young. It really is. I think that she was either 35 or 36, mm-hmm. um, based on how I calculated the years of everything. But, I mean, she doesn't have a birth record or anything. Right. Or a death record. I just know the date she died from the newspapers. What I think is interesting to put in perspective here, like, if you really think about the context of her life, she put up with a lot, but she was really able to... You know, within the structures that sought to confine her for mm-hmm. slavery, her assault, 
her imprisonment, all these things, she was still able to clearly and firmly assert autonomy where she was able. Mm -hmm. Like, she was able to throw shade back at forces that sought to put her down. She did a lot for what she was presented and, like, how she was able to navigate her life. I mean, this is not trying to say this is an inspiring disabled person or anything, but she dealt with a lot and she made the most of what she could. And I really hope that she had some fulfilling relationships, Mm -hmm. like in friendships. And I hope so too. And I think that Lucy Smith, her previous roommate in Memphis, it seemed like they have a very close relationship, not romantic. I think it was most paternal. Pr- pl- yeah, paternal. I think Frances may have taken on the role as a mother because Lucy was only 15 when they first moved, moved to Memphis. Right. So, so she's like, you're a baby. You know? Yeah. So I think she did have some meaningful relationships. And I, I wonder if that gave her the strength to be confident and solid in her it makes understanding sense of herself. Also, like she was reaffirmed for most of her life that okay you are a woman or like right. you passed so being perceived as a woman she's like what do you mean why are you calling me a man all of a sudden this is ridiculous like, throughout my entire childhood and like into my adulthood i have been perceived as a woman right. this doesn't make any sense and it's never been a problem before now mm-hmm. yeah and, and it, it was it, her abuse that really led a spiral downwards mm-hmm. like that's yeah. just and it, abuse at the hands of white policemen even after her passing arguably as a result of her arrest and being pretty much forced out of her home in memphis confederate sympathizers jumped at the opportunity to use francis's story as fuel for their hateful and unfounded arguments against reconstruction voting rights for black americans and the legitimacy of the memphis riots in general Again from the Memphis Daily Appeal, in a January 2nd, 1877 article titled Radical Theft, Lying, Deceit, and Trickery. Oof. All four of them. Add the synonyms. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Quote, The states of the South, one by one, have been subjected to bulldozing schemes of these creatures, referring to Francis. Fruitful as they have been proven of lying, chicane, and deceit, but finding these no longer productive as of old that even their northern dupes can no longer be gulled by horrifying pictures of the rape of Francis Thompson. I mean, creature is definitely gender. yeah. (laughs) This is the first thing of creature as a gender, part of accidental (laughs) (laughs) ally. Yeah, yeah. And creature, it's like... Very modern. It is, but also, like, extremely dehumanizing. It's subjectifying. It is. In the sense of philosophy saying women if you go to like plato or something women are the less cool version of men (laughs) yeah and then it just goes down the line of animals are like basically women it's just bad yeah it's the likening to a lesser species right because it's very much like this is deceitful your existence you are lying Mm -hmm. by going against what god has said your body is it's just like chill out yeah, yeah. You have to also remember, this is during re- in the smack dab middle of it. They got a lot going on already. Why focus on her? Right. And uh, yeah, white Southerners were super upset yeah. about it. Francis was the perfect example for them to use to uphold these straw man right. arguments against just equal rights. She is less a person and more a symbol for them to reaffirm these structures of gender and race and ability because they're talking about all of them simultaneously the concept of pictures of old Mm -hmm. idealizing the past even this far in the past like this is these people have not changed (laughs) i know it's very telling about modern conservative politics which yeah. we won't get into at this specific moment it's not the topic of this discussion not the topic of this discussion but it is it is interesting to see just the parallels right it's it's, it's very very similar cannot be separated out either yeah at this time it was considered radicals and just two different words for the same thing this flattering coverage of francis continued Oof on after her death in a November 3rd article, the day after she passed away, titled Francis Thompson Dead, published in the Public Ledger. Very descriptive. Yes. 
this notorious black male, they did not use the word black, they used a different word to describe a black person, who in days gone by wore female apparel and testified before the Congressional Investigating Committee on the Memphis riots. Of the dead, say nothing but what is good is an old Latin proverb, but truth compels us to state that but few more notorious villains ever cursed the earth than was Francis Thompson in life. After a long life of infamous lewdness and wickedness, he sleeps well. What? Yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Gross. Painting her as... In the, the term lewdness evokes, you know, obscene. It's a connotation with, like, sex work. Definitely. And by what we know, she was not a sex worker. Yeah. So... Not that being a sex worker is a bad thing, but... It's the equivocation of these things pretty early. She was not a sex worker. If she was, that is fine. But, like, in this context, the word lewd has a really negative connotation, and it is meant to insult. Insult her sexuality, primarily, which is not even a focal point of this at all. And this is also, I think, speaking to the fact that she's a black woman. Because black women are not white women, they are not seen as real women, and so they are seen as having loose sexual morals. And that is being mapped onto her here when they're simultaneously misgendering her. Mm -hmm. Like, it's bizarre. And she also just died. Right. Which is, like, also... Like, the disrespect wow. has many layers. <laughs> yes, it really does. It's it's gender, it's sex, it's race, and just criminal. I, I'm pretty sure this kind of coverage dates further back. This is still the perpetuation of the roots of what we're seeing now. With right. like the discrimination <laughs> and phobia of trans people. It's very much like, this is different from what the Bible tells me in my perception of the bible Mm -hmm. about gender this is not an avenue where we can control Mm -hmm. and so this is terrifying this means threatening masculinity right because masculinity in their perception is hard fought and easily lost as Mm -hmm. like if a man can be a woman what does that say about me it's just they are saying anything to make themselves feel strong and using francis as this kind of point of attack this boogeyman boogie woman boogie boogie woman (laughs) yes i should say (laughs) although francis experienced incomprehensible levels of trauma during her lifetime she was determined to achieve a life beyond what she was confined to what we scholars of queer history must do is to untangle her from the blasphemy spewed about her in the newspapers, and generally what white 19th century Southern society deemed her to be, rather than what she defined herself as. Mm-hmm. Francis is proof that trans people are on another plane of existence that cis people <laughs> just simply cannot comprehend. Correct. The sheer agency over her body and her assertion that it was no one's business uh, is a testimony to her strong agency and imagination for what the world should look like just simply by existing. In that instance, it's like just I'm a woman when you're trans is a radical act. And it still kind of is like it's something that should be simple, but it becomes complicated and becomes a point of radicalization this moralistic panic. It's like what we talk about in Gender Studies 101 of Uh like penis panics where people really get concerned about trans women because some of them have penises when it's really not that serious. They freak out also when trans men use women's bathrooms Mm -hmm. and it's like, no one can win with you. Yeah, (laughs) I'm remembering also from a class taught by Dr. Fisher Mm -hmm. that black men in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, were hypersexualized in a way that threatened white femininity. So I, that definitely played a part in, in how the media portrayed Francis. Not that she was a black man, but because they believed she was. It's putting the stereotypes onto her. All of these assumptions that are tied up in black masculinity, but also black femininity. Right. It's the sexual predatorification. Yeah, new term. Yeah, (laughs) of black bodies. Constructing the myth because of the fragility of white men. It's a lot. Similarly to Francis, 
Lizzie Montgomery was not shown the respect she deserved in the media that talked about her life, but she existed anyway. <laughs> I found a fragment of her life story mentioned in three separate news sources in the year 1870. So she was sort of prolific among people who were scared of her. To put this into perspective, this is six years before Frances was first covered for being trans. We don't know much about Lizzie apart from what was covered in the news stories, though it's not for lack of trying. I combed through many directories under her name and even her dead name, but there was no evidence of birth records, death records, arrests, court records, and so on. We also unfortunately do not have her own words, just what we can infer from the coverage. What we do know is that people were confused what a trans person is and whether or not they're human, which plays into Lizzie's story as well. The story of Lizzie Montgomery starts from the first record we found covering her, which was published in the Nashville Union and American on July 27th, 1870, in an article egregiously titled, Man in Woman's Clothes? Oof. Yeah. As the title of the article suggests, Lizzie's story was told in the tone of outrage for her, quote, grave infringement of women's rights by wearing clothing that aligned with her gender and how that it was incongruous with the gender the world told her she was based on her assigned sex. This article describes Lizzie as a black chevalier d'on, which uh, is French. <laughs> it's essentially a 19th century code for a black trans woman. You got it. Since there were not really terms at the time to describe transness, chevalier d'on, a little backstory, was a reference for transness as she was actually a trans woman in 1700s France who was publicly recognized by royalty, the law, the state, as a woman. But her story is another day. The point is this paper knows their trans history, though probably not for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just the only term they had at the time. Right. So they were just like, oh, well. They're speaking in a- meme. Yeah, yeah. Also, what's really interesting, if you look at the text of these articles, they don't gender Chevalier Dion. Oh, like, wow. They just say a black Chevalier Dion, or however you're supposed to pronounce uh-huh. it, as opposed to saying using describing pronouns. like or using a pronoun mm, okay. for this person. Huh. So it's sneaky. Yeah, it's wow. not exactly affirming, but yeah, um, they're just like you know this phenomenon back in a uh, hundred years ago. <laughs> like Frances, Lizzie lived the beginning of her life as a slave, though she was actually from Texas. We don't know what city. They just say. Texas, you get it. So her body was perceived by broader society as a commodity, a good to produce wealth for those who owned her. Adding the layers of black womanhood and transness, her gender was not the same as a white woman who fit into a clean cut box of what was defined as a woman. Mm -hmm. She was confusing for people who adhered to scripted expectations of gender. Those who wrote about her in the paper. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to Frances. Yeah, I think so too. Mm-hmm. Despite this pressure, Lizzie was pretty adamant that she was a woman, even when she was a child. Again, much oh, like yeah. Frances. There yeah. are some rhymes within their stories, though, but it's good that we get some detail with Frances. As the National Union and American writes when they misgender her... <laughs> from his youth up, has had a desire to dress exclusively in women's clothing. This was until she was, as they put, compelled later on to wear men's clothing and conform to cisgender norms, which is yet another, another parallel (laughs) to Francis, who was also forced to dress as a man at some point. They are, like, coming up with a procedure, and these are in different states, you know? Like, this is a coverage from Tennessee, but... These events are happening in Texas. Right. It's the same same thing. Yeah. Lizzie also had lifelong other hobbies that were seen as peculiar to their perspective of the Nashville paper. She liked to sew, quilt, knit, and cook. Feminized tasks. Probably my favorite one of her hobbies listed in the same list. Lizzie longed for the ballot. Yes, that was a listed hobby of hers. She wanted to vote as a woman as a hobby. Probably like many people who want abortion rights, just like as a hobby, <laughs> casually. Yes. <laughs> Equating that like knitting and like, I want to vote. Um, just, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, I like to knit and also I would like some human rights too. Right. <laughs> just like as a hobby. Yeah. 
It's hard to reconcile how, on one hand, she was an advocate for women's rights for her own self-interest, but on the other hand, in their mind, be in jail because she is infringing women's rights. Another interesting question that this raises is what rights do women have that she's infringing on? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Texas women were primarily property of their husbands and fathers at this time. Was Lizzie infringing women's rights to exist as women? Because that's pretty basic. Mm-hmm. It does seem to be the case here that this was not happening. If the right were infringed as this paper claim, like if it was written down, mm-hmm. they would cite like X right or X law given to women under either the state or the national government. They would actually cite it. If they're like, she's breaking the law, this law. Uh-huh. But alas, it does not seem to exist anywhere in this time except probably conception of natural law. They don't really have much of that anyway. Right. So the right to be a mother. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. not much, but... Yeah, the lack of sources is very much the same. Convenient that they don't yeah. mention specific women's mm-hmm. rights. Mm-hmm. How is she... They're being so vague. Infringing on women's vested rights. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. It's, it's the picky choosiness of it. It's like, so you know that they don't actually care about women's rights. Does this enrage women or like <laughs> men to be like... She's going after our rights. I'm like, she's trying to help you. For real. She wants to vote too. That's why she's trying to help you. But like, this is very turfy. Very early turf. This really gets to the hypocrisy and tactics used by the paper to frame Lizzie's existence. In the course of this paper, she's only referred to by incorrect pronouns. And as a man, literally they write, Once he was a slave and sometimes compelled to dress as a man. But when the year of Jubilo came dead name, such as his name, rushed madly into liberty and female clothes and wildly professed that his name is Lizzie. So, like, she very obviously was, like, she is a woman. Yeah. That's how she felt and that's how she decided after she heard that song. So she came out by, like, wildly professing her name Mm -hmm. in a town with many white conservatives who had just lost the Civil War. That's, I'm not (laughs) going to be, like... It's pretty brave of her, but that, that's pretty brave of her. It, it really is. Very, very bold. <laughs> that takes some guts. It makes me also wonder if she was accepted by her peers at the time or some of the people she interacted with. Since she seemed pretty adamant about asserting she was a woman. She was really confident mm-hmm. in terms of this paper's writing of her. But anyway, for context, the year of Jubila, which is credited as a reason why Lizzie was trans <laughs> or just inspired to come out again after she was compelled to dress as a man, is a song, actually. Mm-hmm. It's a union song in origin that made its way to Texas. Probably because of the singers that would go on tour to other states and sing songs about how slavery was bad. This song specifically tells a story about how the slaves free themselves and lock their master up in a closet. They also drink his liquor and wait for the Union Army to come. Autonomy and liquor. This Uh seems fun. Theoretically, I can see why someone would gravitate to a song that gives slaves autonomy over their own lives, even like the slightest bit. Maybe there's some truth to it, or maybe it was a tactic of the press to use this song as a black slave uprising against their former masters to inspire panic and white slave owning populations covering black trans people. It's very much trying to induce a moral panic. Right. Lizzie's story was published again, almost word for word, in a California paper called The Daily Alto. On August 5th, 1870, they chose to creatively title the article A Black Chevalier d'On. So they're very creative. And then after that, a paper in Washington only wrote a small summary that, quote, A Black Chevalier d'On is reported in Texas calls himself Lizzie, and will wear petticoats. So it's simple, but enough to identify Lizzie as a subject. It's enough to, to, to identify. A small sentence, and it, that's funny. This is almost like a warning to others to beware of the lie Lizzie is living by aligning herself with feminine cues, such as clothing. By not living as a man, what people saw her as. She is like tricking others for the intent of the coverage. Are they like telling people to look out for other 
black women wearing petticoats because it might be Lizzie the scary trans woman. I don't right. know. This was published in Washington. Also, it's like, if you are in Texas, watch out for Lizzie, that woman over there. I don't know. It's like, like she's hiding in the bushes. She's going to jump another out at you. state. Yeah. She's pretty infamous in the number of times that they cover her. Mm-hmm. It's another rhyme to Francis's story because the sensationalization of the coverage of her story without an image of her without her own words to speak for herself and without traceable record in Texas archives speaks to the lack of value placed on her life. We do not know the result of this coverage, if she was able to live anonymously anymore or if she met a similar fate to Francis, as there again were no records. Lizzie's existence and the publication of her story was solely to paint her as an oddity because she was black and not cisgender and I also have to wonder if she was disabled in some way. Now on to our last story for today. We will briefly talk about Ellis Glenn, who was from Texas and later moved to Illinois. Ellis is a bit different from our previous two subjects because Ellis was assigned female at birth and never claimed to be a man. Thus, we will be using she pronouns for her because we presume she was not transgender. Mm -hmm. However, the news did give Ellis the title, the girl man of Southern Illinois. So she had that going for her. (laughs) I also feel like this is another example of the news trying to insult by actually coming up with something cool. Mm-hmm. To be used in the process, like <laughs> Early Accidental Ally Part 2. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool title. Ellis confused the press in a different way to Francis and Lizzie because she dressed as a man and posed as her twin brother, Albert, or what I fondly referred to as high stakes brother drag. Nice. Um, I won't get into like all the details as to why she dresses as her brother or does brother drag because it's not the point of our discussion. But essentially, it was to help him out of a bind by taking his place for a bit. So she's like doing him a solid. Mm-hmm. Ellis was actually pretty convincing. She could have made a great drag king by modern <laughs> standards. She was able to pull off posing as her brother and even convinced his fiance. She was only discovered when she was strip-searched before intake as she entered prison on her brother's behalf. One of the other facts of the story, she was like, I did not expect to get strip-searched in jail. So that's on you. But yeah, they were flabbergasted that she was, quote-unquote, a woman. Uh What is interesting about Alice is how the news frames her story. The article was called For Brother's Guilt. A Puzzle and Identity. Interesting. Um, Yeah, puzzling. Published in the St. Paul Globe on December 10th, 1899. Mm -hmm. Instead of the small bit of coverage given to Lizzie, we see like a full page spread about the circumstances that made this woman pose as her twin brother. Even though chronologically she was able to pass as a man, the article spends like a grueling two paragraphs describing her body and how she could not possibly reasonably pass as a man. Mm. Here is what they said. The prisoner's face is a peculiar one. It is a large, slender oval, the most prominent feature of which are a pair of large, expressive eyes and a peculiar shade of green and a large Grecian nose. There is a droop about the upper lip and the chin is that of a woman. A profile view of her face gives it a masculine appearance, but a front view develops the feminine characteristics. Her voice is soft and pleasuring. Her hands are large for a woman, and so are her feet. She is about five feet tall and will weigh not over 100 pounds. It's it's wild. Like, wow. They are really disgusting. Uh- <laughs> Every detail. I love that they say that her, her chin is that of a woman. Right. A womanly chin. Gross. Weird. It's odd here that the news is choosing to paint her in such detail and define features such as her chin, as we said, as inherently feminine, along with a soft and pleasuring voice. Mm-hmm. The description is aligning Ellis with key feminine standards. Right. To be soft, frail, small. In this case, she is portrayed as confused in having blind devotion to her brother that causes her 
identity crisis essentially that's so different from how francis and lizzie were were discussed like they didn't give them the benefit of the doubt at all right francis and lizzie are maliciously pretending to be women whereas ellis is just confused and she's so loyal to a fault in this instance it's like a little infantilizing it is infantilizing for sure Mm -hmm. which is really consistent to where how women are treated Mm -hmm. in this time they present francis as a literal villain with all this agency, but they're Mm -hmm. threatened by Ellis in a different way, Mm. so they're just trying to cover it up, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the article paints it as bewildering that she believes she could get away with being a man with a body such as hers. With the similarities to Francis and Lizzie, she was essentially tricking people into believing a lie because of her sex. These cannot be equated even in Ellis's case, even though she was not claiming to be a man. She was still confusing gender, so gender and sex are not the same for her either. Maybe what we could understand now as genderqueer or gender fluid, if a label helps, but like at the very least, she exhibits gender non-conforming behavior. Mm -hmm. She cuts her hair and performs masculinity in this case with a purpose, but Ellis' existence blurs like the gender binary codes. It's Mm -hmm. confusing. Mm Until the paper strongly reasserts that Ellis is definitely a white woman to be read under their guidelines. This is what the body analysis is saying here. Like, essentially, femininity is mapped onto her in a more coherent way than Frances and Lizzie because white womanhood is the staple of femininity. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty gross. Right. The coverage is using Ellis's story and arguably successful gender bending as a reason to enforce scripted gender norms or like ellis tried to be a man when it was so obvious she was a woman this is really insulting her drag like she did it you know she tried it very very hard that's that's hard for a lot of trans people yeah and i mean (laughs) under the stakes too that she was trying to high stakes yeah it was high stakes she's trying to achieve brother drag (laughs) she did it though she She, did she did it the the coverage of after she was discovered was like they were like so confused and panicked they were like Like, we have like a woman in yeah frantically (laughs) they had to move her to a different city overnight because they were like we don't have women's facilities here what do we do they were panicking right yeah yeah and Frances and Lizzie would not have been treated like oh, that. Oh, for know? sure. Uh, yeah, definitely. It's definitely because of their race, you know. Them being black and Ellis being white. And also Ellis being her biggest I... cis woman. Now that we've covered some historical examples of transgender news coverage, we want to talk about the recent examples. This segment is based on analysis done by some of my favorite podcast hosts, (laughs) trans-independent journalist Amara Jones and former journalist Tuck Woodstock, who are both now podcasters, as I mentioned. We've linked to some of their work in the show notes on the topic, but generally their shows are great for thinking about gender. Mm -hmm. And much of this coverage of trans people is quick to deadname with the excuse of being accurate, but they'll usually not make a distinction. Mm -hmm. Also, in this case of death... This alienates people who only know them by their actual names. This shows a clear lack of understanding, even though coverage will claim, quote, objectivity or accuracy, but proceed to misgender trans people, which is objectively inaccurate. Yeah, if a trans person dies and, like, the news covers it, they will knowingly write the wrong name. Mm -hmm. The people who are friends with them, who love them don't know that their friend has died by this coverage that they cannot use this as like a notice to find out right or they do know that it's about them and it's just like really it just adds to the pain and anguish of finding out that your loved one has passed away by news coverage that purposefully misgenders them mainstream media is also guilty of propping up anti-trans hate speech and rhetoric and the interest of playing both sides but actually causing harm. Yeah, but ultimately it's just platforming, degrading, and and hateful rhetoric that has literally been instilled in American fabric. The New York Times is a prime example, especially with their opinion pieces such as this one, titled In Defense of J.K. Rowling, published in February of this year, uh, 2023. Here are a few highlights as the writer put this campaign against Rowling is as dangerous as it is absurd. In Rowling's case, the characterization of her as a transphobe does not square with her actual views. 
why would anyone accuse her of transphobia? <laughs> then down the article, they're like so confused as to why she could be transphobe. Then they say, she has just asserted the right to spaces for biological women only, such as domestic abuse shelters and sex-segregated prisons, because she has insisted that when it comes to determining a person's legal gender status, self-declared gender identity is insufficient. So it's like, why is she a transphobe? Oh, she's transphobic. Mm. It's gaslighting in the coverage itself. Right, yeah. This is an opinion piece, but it's still published in the New York Times. Yeah, which is a major national publication. Also kind of just known as transphobic. Yes. There are also cases where there is no regard to the backlash of outing someone Mm -hmm. as the interest solely lies in getting the story out from the perspective of the news coverage. Selling papers, getting clicks. Yes, especially getting clicks. For example, the article titled Alabama Mayor Kills Self After Right-Wing Blog Outs His Cross-Dressing, published in November of this year in the Daily Beast, which is a notable right-wing news site, it states, quote, A small-town Alabama pastor and mayor killed himself Friday, days after a local conservative news website published a story that included photos of him wearing women's clothing and makeup. Copeland, the mayor asked them not to out him, but they did so anyway. Horrible. Yeah. The lack of care toward Copeland and his loved ones that is exemplified in this sentence is exactly what we're talking about. Also, the fact that he was originally outed on another conservative news site means that the Daily Beast published this again, only to just get more clicks and more money off of this incredibly sad story. And reflecting on our discussions of Francis, Lizzie, and Ellis, the copy and pasting of news stories is nothing new. Now it's just more incentivized by the monetization aspect of online news sites. Just because someone is conservative or... Is part of the in-group. Right. They wrote in this paper, I don't really know how much to give them credit for this, but like they wrote in this paper that this mayor did not publicly diss on queer people. Mm -hmm. That's what they're claiming, right? Right. Just because a trans person or someone plays with gender, someone uh-huh. who's doing gender non-conforming behavior, this is not a reason to disrespect them. I do not agree with probably a lot of Copeland's political opinions, probably, right? Yeah. But like, I'm not going to diss him for doing whatever he wants in his spare time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you do you. I think that's great. This is something that's really interesting as well as conservative men probably feel more shame about it. Definitely. And that makes sense in Copeland's case because he committed suicide over this. Which is so... It's incredibly sad. Like, he had a wife, he had kids, he had a Mm -hmm. community that... He was a pastor. Yeah. You know, like, this type of media rhetoric is deadly. And we saw that with Francis. We don't know about Lizzie, but we saw that with Francis. Mm Mm-hmm even though she was arrested and everything, but... It, which led to her it, death. It ultimately led to her death. And with Copeland, it's the same thing. There's rhymes. There's There are rhymes here. Thematic links. And it's just sad. But despite the dehumanizing and humiliating rhetoric that the media has historically directed towards trans people and just gender non-conforming people in general, right. one key difference in modern coverage of trans issues is a much greater amount of variation between respectful and informed coverage versus bad faith misleading coverage, which is what we've we've just discussed. In the interest of respectful and informed coverage, right? in the beginning of November 2023, a teenage trans boy named Max Hightower was kicked out of his lead role in his high school production of Oklahoma! Exclamation point. The Dallas Morning News did a great job of covering the situation, centering Max and his family's experience, and relaying the events in a concise, informed, and sympathetic manner. Here's a short section from the article. Max said that after learning he'd lost the part, he was so upset that he could barely speak. I think only one word I said was, why? He said, for Max, the school's move has threatened a space that he and his friends rely on to be inclusive. Only theater students got similar news and the district pushed the show back at least until mid-January. He says, again, I like being in theater because I get to be with people who are like me. Because there's a lot of trans people and LGBTQ people in theater. 
It allows me to express myself. Theater has been ours. He is so eloquent for yeah. a child. <laughs> I mean, he is 17. He's a senior in high school. Okay. But, still um, a baby. Though. But yeah, still a baby. But I love this coverage. It centers Max and his experience and his it family. It quotes him. It quotes him a lot. He gets to speak for himself. Yes. And that was the most important part. Does not that... misgender him, which is a low bar. Yes. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is a low bar. But I mean... From where we have seen with Francis and Lizzie and Ellis, it has come a long way. Right. I mean, we're kind of giving them points for not doing terrible things. We are. But, like, it's just kind of nice. Even in the story, Max is being discriminated against. Yeah. And he is really sad about it. Yeah. But we're going to say why Max is sad. Yeah. This also paints discrimination as wrong. Right. Which is great. The bar is buried under the ground. It is. (laughs) It is. But, I mean, that means we have more progress to make i guess and yeah. i i mean progress I, is not linear it's definitely sure. not because we are also getting the daily beast and jk rowling simultaneously yeah, yeah in another article published by the texas tribune in february of 2022 journalists snea day and karen brooks harper discuss governor greg abbott's executive order that states parents who seek gender affirming care for their children should be investigated for child abuse In their coverage, they interview several transgender kids and their parents who live in Texas, including a trans girl, Adeline Vigil. Here is a quote from the beginning of the article. Every couple of months, Adamalis Vigil drives eight hours from the Rio Grande Valley to North Texas so her 13-year-old transgender daughter, Adeline, can receive health care. They talk and sing the whole trip. The care she receives there is unavailable in her hometown, but pivotal to her sense of identity and her mental health. It makes me feel who I truly am, and I don't feel singled out for not being like the other girls in school anymore, Adeline said. It's just very special for me that mom takes me all the way over there. Yeah, so it's probably like puberty blockers, but still doing a lot. Right, it's so sweet. This coverage paints a narrative. They have to go so far, the implication Mm -hmm. of this law... The Texas Tribune in general is really good about covering trans people in a very respectful way. Yeah. Like the article about Max from the Dallas Morning News, Day and Harper also center Adeline's words and experience, tying that to their discussion of Abbott's order and the real-world implications that has on trans children and their families in Texas. Unlike the Daily Beast article we talked about earlier, this one refrains from publishing any information that the families ask them not to share, which just shows a basic respect for privacy and allows the families to remain in control of their narrative. They're simply just exposing real-life consequences that people are facing because of these harmful policies that are trying to and are being enacted. We've made it to the end of our queer history story hour. But we'd like to leave y'all, because we're Texans. Because we're, we're Southern. <laughs> we're Southern Texans here, with some key takeaways. Trans people have always been here in the South, leaving their queer legacies for us to learn from and change things for the better. So thanks. Yes. Also, the coverage of trans people in the 19th century is honestly not that far off from what we can still see in many areas of the U.S. South today. The dehumanizing and criminalizing origins of trans people in the American media started here, which has condemned our ancestors, our trans ancestors, (laughs) (laughs) to systematic erasure and condemnation to the margins of society. Frances Thompson, Lizzie Montgomery, and Ellis Glenn have all experienced this treatment independently of each other. But after analyzing the tactics used by these news publications, we come to see how they were not alone. I find it ironic that despite the deliberate misgendering and dead naming, violent misgendering and dead naming, to the vile and aggrandizing rhetoric used to describe them, Francis, Lizzie, and Ellis still exist and will always exist. And the only reason we know about them is because of their coverage. Because of this coverage, we know who they are. We get to piece it out. Think like, okay, what does this actually mean? It's full circle. Right. It's really special that we have these pieces of primary source gold. Yeah. Trans people are not new. Trans people have always been here in the 1800s and the 1700s in France. Oh, yeah. Uh, They told us that in the historical news coverage, and you can check Wikipedia. Uh, (laughs) 
it's really nice to see that people were messing with gender since long before we were. Yeah, we'd like to give a special thanks to Dr. Fisher and all of our classmates that are part of ecstatic time here in the queer South. Mm -hmm. It was a joy getting to work together to put a spotlight on queer Southern history with all of them. Special shout out to Daniel for the website. Yes, and it's all of our projects are going to live forever. Hopefully. They will be archived and not deleted. <laughs> yes. So so all of this information that we're talking about, all of these important discussions are going to be kept forever. Correct. Also, I made a painting, so you can look at the painting. Yes. There is also, <laughs> we have we have two visual pieces that we're, are going to go along with our physical exhibit. You so. have visual reference. Yes. So check that out. And I'm sure some of y'all that are listening right now have already seen it. Yeah. So. Investigate. Please. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, we worked very hard. We did. There's yeah. a lot of different avenues to explore this topic if yeah. you're interested. Yeah. Trans people are everywhere and trans people are making a lot of content about it. Right. So you, there's, there's vast. We have vast, their own words now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We have our own vocabulary and yeah. everything. So yeah, it's come a long way since the 19th century. Right. We're doing better, but we still got more to do, you know? Yeah, the sources that we use for this audio narrative, <laughs> very scholarly of us, <laughs> are listed in the show notes, because I've always wanted to say show notes. <laughs> we encourage you to look through them and explore the lives of these individuals further. There is also a recommended section that we have, what is the word, curated, because <laughs> yes. we're scholars, yes. <laughs> yes. of related material that we think is cool. So if you're interested, you can check that out too. Be scholars yourselves, please. Yes. If you can, no pressure. Yeah. Everybody is capable of being a scholar, whether yeah. you are in college or not. No imposter syndrome here. Yes. We're fighting <laughs> against that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.